Hi there, global citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Sidhu, coming to you from a bright and sunny summer Brooklyn afternoon. It's beautiful. It reminds me of the last time I saw my guest because today is a day, there's this Brooklyn annual, well, it's, Brooklyn, it's not annual, it's a couple of times in the summer and it's called The Layout. And so it's at Fort Greene Park and people gather. And today is one of those days, it is The Layout. Last I saw him, I was at a layout with friends. Today's a work day, so I won't be there today, but it's just kind of nostalgic in a a summer memories kind of way. So let me get into his background. He's a videographer, composer, and musician who began his career in African dance in Colorado with Letitia Williams' Harambee and musical director Judy Fatu Henderson. He later relocated to New York where he began studying dance and drum with pioneers Yusuf Kumbasa, Mbeba Bangura, and Ronald Gay Brown. He has performed with creative masters such as Chuck Davis and BAM's Dance Africa, Reginald Yates and Heritage OP for the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater's 40th anniversary season, with musicians such as Roy Ayers, Wunmi Olaya, Manchild Black, and Akua Aldrich to name a few. He has also performed on and off-Broadway in the musical Fela and Darker Faces of the Earth, directed by Trezana Beverly, respectively. As a videographer, most recent projects include editing the archival documentary for Kumbuka, the longest active New Orleans-based West African dance troupe. This fall, he joins Florida State University as a tenure-track professor with a focus on music for dance and choreography. He will be teaching rhythmic analysis music for choreography, and digital audio recording, while also providing music support for African, Dunham, and contemporary classes. Mr. Farai Malianga, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Florence. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for being who you are. So let's jump right in. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? All right. I am born and raised in Zimbabwe, mm-hmm. moving, of course, to New York and then to Colorado, where I became a part of the African dance troupe that you've mentioned, and then back to New York for the last 20 years. But right now I am in Florida, in Tallahassee, Florida, with the Florida State University. Um, I just moved here a month ago, so I'm getting acclimated, you know, and um, I'm missing Brooklyn a little bit. Okay. Because the last time we met, that was good fun. Yeah. But, um, you know, but I'm here and happy to be here. So things are working out really well. So yeah, that's where I'm from. That's the way I, that's where I'm locally is right here in Florida. Okay. University. And what is your craft? All right. I am... I, I mean, I, I say on my resume and bio that I am a videographer and composer, but first and foremost, I'm a, I'm, I'm a drummer. Mm-hmm. I play music. I, make African, I play African drums. I make African music. Mm-hmm. I did it because I love dance. I love to dance. But the main thing that I do now is play drums uh, for mostly for dance. Okay. Okay. And teach. Yeah. <laughs> and teach. I mean, I... Yeah, I I could go through a whole list of things. You know how we do. And to survive in New York, I've been here for two for twenty years. And to survive in New York, you better do everything. But you know, to keep it simple, dancing music is my Okay. <laughs> that is that is the craft that is you. Wonderful. Okay. So you grew up born and raised in Zimbabwe. Tell us more about your Zimbabwe story. Tell us where from. And you know, Zimbabwe has a very interesting present and past. And so give us a, a little bit of a understanding of the Zimbabwe that you knew and the Zimbabwe that you now know. 
I mean, that's a very deep story because I didn't really realize fully until I was a little bit, I started talking about it a little bit more that we, my sister and I grew up in Zimbabwe. So we were born in the 70s and Zimbabwe got its independence from colonial rule in 1980. So we were actually right in the middle of the transition, you know, in Ghana, you guys got your independence way before that. But we literally were in the transition process. So my sister and I were some of the first African kids to be in private schools. So my school had approximately three black students out of a total of 300. So I never quite fully realized how much of a... Um, how much of an effect that had on my life and how I developed. But that was a major part of what we went through. But we always were adaptive. We always knew that we had to, you know, made our own way. And it was being who you are in the context of an environment that doesn't always accept you was was a big part of my narrative. At the same time, I, I was raised in a kind of household that was very conscious. So it never really affected me in terms of personally, but it did identify how I moved through the world. So that's how we, we both got started. So Zimbabwe was a very interesting place at the time. And of course, it's gone through so many transitions. You know, it's, it's going to be a while before it settles down. But when we were growing up, we were, we were very privileged in that we had access to a lot of the things that were not, you know, a part of the African community at the time. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what brought your family to the U.S.? So um, I guess I should be more specific about my background. My dad is from Zimbabwe, and he went to Ithaca University in upstate New York. And my mother is from Bronx, New York. So I'm, I'm the African-American, real, maybe African-American, I don't know how you're different. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so she was going to Cornell University, which was, I didn't realize it was quite a feat, because she was coming from Cornell, and in 69, she, I mean, coming from the Bronx, and in 69, she was also one of the first to be to make it into a mm. prestigious university like Cornell. So my yeah. dad was a part of the African Student Union and my mom was very active and kind of conscious and she was trying to understand her heritage and roots. So they met at Ithaca during some different speeches. I think one of the things they went to see is the Leroy Jones and Mary Baraka and they ended up driving him all the way to New York. It's kind of a funny story. They gave him a ride mm. to New York. Mm-hmm. But that was one of the first times they met. So the, as a result, that's kind of uh, my background is in bo- is based on those both those two cultures. Uh, so once I came of age, we took our O levels. Or right before I took my O levels, it kind of just made sense that we needed to come to the states to take advantage of the education system. Yeah, that's, right. That's why we came. Right. Right. Wow. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. So kind of academic parentage that a lot of our stories brought us across the ocean. Big time, right? I mean, we, 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 it's one of those things you have to always like, there's different types of immigrants, right? You know, mm-hmm. and then, mm-hmm. and of course you're dealing with a whole bunch of issues like racism and all these different things in, in the global sense. But then mm-hmm. we also have to kind of acknowledge some of our privilege because what our parents mm-hmm. went through to put us in an environment is going to get some of the best education in the world as a mm-hmm. result of like navigating mm-hmm. through these walls that separate Africans from from me, the uh, European education system, working through them, being yeah. one of the few to get through and then come to the Americas with that education that we were very privileged to have. It's it's a very unique, unique story, but it's very common in terms of the people that are in, in New York, for example. A lot of us Africans in New York come right. from that story. Right. Exactly. And I'd say a lot of like my parents' peers. So let's, I'm going to transition into, okay, so Colorado. So my parents ended up in Colorado, right? And so that also was an academic thing because there was nothing bringing a lot of Africans to Colorado except for a school, probably. So right. that was, I mean, it's different now, but but then it was, it was definitely the academic journey. So, okay, you come to New York. Mm-hmm. How did Colorado become part of your story? 
Wow. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, so uh, my, when my mom was in Zimbabwe, she was a part of the UN Information Services. That's where she worked for part of the time. Okay. And while she was there, okay. she met a university person. So my, my mom had always wanted to become a veterinarian, and, and she loved wildlife mm. sciences. And so she met mm -hmm. somebody who was from the Colorado State University while she was in the city. Okay. So when we came to the U.S., she contacted that person again. And because he was at the, at the Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, she was like, you know what? That's where we got to go. She just wasn't comfortable raising us in New York. So we just okay. we bought a Subaru, jumped in the back and <laughs> drove across country and ended up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. So you're in Colorado. The family's all there driving your... I feel like the Subaru was like the Colorado car mascot. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know if she knew that at the time, but we ended up being so typical, typical Colorado. Yeah, yeah it must right. Have been a like, a, you know, was it a wagon at that? Yes, it was. Or was it, yeah. <laughs> you know about this stuff. We have more in common than we realize, huh? We know. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. So the way that we know each other is yeah. through my sister, who was a part of Harambe. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of getting at when did when did the drummer, videographer in you, the creative in you become who you are? Because, you know, I'm sure I have a feeling your parents were not anticipating that they'd have this creative son and probably drove into him something that was a little bit of ways, a little bit more technical, something like that. Mm -hmm. So how, how, how did you navigate getting into the creative? It's arts? ironic because both, both of my parents are not really, don't really fit the mold of anything, but mm -hmm. you are hundred percent right. It's impossible to leave Africa and come here and thinking and telling everybody, oh, I'm going to become a creative person. And I was lucky that my, neither of my parents discouraged it, mm -hmm. but I, I was the one who was actually more caught up in that concept. So what ended up happening mm. when I got into the University of Colorado, I actually applied to the engineering school, you know, which actually was oh, okay. right, in, right in line to the African uh, principal, engineer, doctor, right? Yeah. But it didn't make any sense for me. I just, it wasn't my thing. Um, and my mom had told me that. My mom was like, do you, I was like, you know, she's like, you don't really want to do this, do you? I sent you to architect. Uh, camp and you really wasn't feeling it. So I don't think engineering is going to work for you. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to get a good job and I'm going to buy you a house and you know all those like romantic things that, that, that you oh, think about. So yeah. what ended up happening is I ended up dropping out of engineering school and rather than have my mother pay off those bills, I started working on campus to try and pay off all the bills that had accrued. Mm. And while I was doing mm -hmm. that, I found, I started getting homesick and I found Harambe African mm. Dancers, which is the dance company that your sister was one of the founders of, um, along mm -hmm. under the tutelage of uh, Letitia Williams. And so it was right. kind of my way of getting back in tune with my history and culture. And uh, and I just joined there as a dancer, and the drummers were showing up, mm. not showing up on time. And I can't dance to uh, with no music. So I started drumming. And then after a while, I hung mm -hmm. out in the summertime with Judy 52 Henderson, who was training a new set of drummers. And now all of a sudden, that became mm -hmm. my passion. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. Wow. So what did you finish with? Um, so yeah, so I, I ended up becoming an engineer, but I ended up becoming an audio engineer. <laughs> I always say I did it. I did what I said I was going to do. You did it. But it was, yeah, I became an audio engineer. So I went to the Colorado Institute of Art where I learned, uh, got a degree in music, video, and business, uh, which was a combination degree okay. that they don't have anymore. You know, okay. um, I know why they don't have anymore. It's, huh. I mean, it's a freelance style degree. It's a degree that actually creates freelancers. And you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. 
Wow. So that's so that didn't make any sense. Color artist art now is very specified. You either do audio engineering or you do um, fashion design. It's very specific now. But mm. that was the last year that they did that combination program. And I'm, it's, I was a perfect timing because it's exactly what I am today. That's very interesting because I always, and now you're, you're in academia, and I always wonder mm-hmm. about continuously now, especially when I look at what we're, what we're probably going to end up with is as the new academic class, right? It, the question is, are we training people to be, first of all, functional out of these art schools? Because that is always the problem is whether or not an artist can actually sustain themselves and understand the world of business because everything is commodified and commercialized, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then also, are we even training the professors to be able to teach in a way that, you know, really enables people to be as productive as, as they desire? I mean, it's, it, it, this is exactly what happened to me. So mm-hmm. it was never my intention to go back into academia. Mm-hmm. But but exactly what you're question or the problem that you're bringing up is exactly why I'm where I'm at and, and why I got the opportunity to be here. So I am actually, they they wanted somebody who would either have a master's degree or they wanted somebody who had the world, real world experience that was the equivalent. Mm-hmm. And being the fact that I was in New York City working with musicians, working with dancers this whole time, the last 20 years, ended up making me a really good candidate, specifically because I'm bringing to the academic world a very real perspective on what it is to survive as an artist yeah. um, in this day and age. And, mm-hmm. you know, the university that I'm at right now was originally a conservatory primarily focused on ballet um, mm-hmm. and producing dancers for ballet dance companies, which is mm-hmm. still a big part of what we do here. But I think that they began to realize that how do we actually make the students' experience relevant so they can actually make a career because only a few can get accepted to dance companies. But yeah. how can they make a career out of it? And there's a vast number of artists who are creating work and have always created work outside of the mainstream and have been successful artists. Right. But now we have this whole new age of technology where these people, where students are literally creating work, not even students, young artists are creating work mm-hmm. and they're blowing up on TikTok. They're blowing mm. up on Instagram, right? Yep. Yep, yep. So why even go to university? If you're making big money off of social media, why even go to university? Right. Well, I think my perspective is there's an art form to what we do, right? Mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm, research mm-hmm. and understanding of the bigger picture. So what a person like me, I feel, brings a connection to the students to say in terms of like, how do you make the highest forms? And when I say highest, I, I mean, I don't mean it in a hierarchical sense, but more in terms of the deepest in research. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you make that information accessible to people to use in so on social media in the ways that are fun and enjoyable and entertaining like they do, mm-hmm. but maybe have another meaning or another intent behind them? And I think that that's where academia can come in. But if we don't connect it to the reality of what artists are doing out there in the world, it doesn't mean anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. So then how, how do you... Because you bring a valid point, like you can be Mm -hmm. famous on TikTok. A lot of people are now famous on TikTok or as, I mean, particularly TikTok, but as, you know, Instagram, Mm -hmm. Facebook, whatever, they've, without any formal training, you know, just kind of become these artists. And so that's definitely disrupted and and Mm -hmm. elevated to some extent artistry. But in terms of like being able to recognize the legacy and yep. and acknowledge tradition or or even to I don't know I kind of like where you're going with the elevate because 
part of that elevation is also um, paying tribute to those before you in a lot of ways. So I think that a lot of artists are, you know, a lot of the artistry is copycat artistry, but without the depth of understanding the why's, the how's. And in some ways, there's kind of workman's hazard that comes in with it. Because if you don't know some of the the technical frameworks of what you're doing, you might injure yourself or you might do something that might injure others. So, I mean, that's the value of kind of an academic framework around it. But as you mentioned, you know, how do you, what, how do you make that important to someone who's already making money? Exactly. And then, then that's mm-hmm. the big question. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, you have to do both. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also, I think there's a sustainability issue that happens in social media. Right. right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you speak to it in terms of just physical well-being as well as creative mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. well-being. Mm-hmm. Right? Because what ends up happening is that I have information based upon my study of the different things that people have done over the years. I have artists that have, that crash and burnt that I know about. I have artists that have been able to sustain their careers. And even if you're a content creator on social media platforms, after a while, you run out of content. Exactly. So then how do you research? How do you continue to grow as an artist? How do you make your work better and more effective? And that's still where academia can come in and support and inform those students that have taken the time to to come to college mm-hmm. and study the background and the history, like you talked yeah. about, of the art forms that they're referencing. I mean, there's a, there's a huge movement now of Afrobeat mm-hmm. on social media. Like everybody wants to dance African-based movements, mm-hmm. right? But how many people know the difference between Afrobeat and Afrobeats? Exactly. Exactly. Fela's music versus Sukus from the Congo, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of the movements they're doing are not from Nigeria. Exactly. So they're not Afrobeat movements, they're Congolese movements. Right. They would never not they would be done Sukus, Sukus yes. back in the sixties yes. and seventies. Yes. You know, and you know about that too. And, you know, Ghana highlights mm-hmm. and all those mm-hmm. different you know, origins of music. Those are very specific to different mm-hmm. regions. And now you have all these which I'm happy about because they're connecting to African music. And you got African-American kids that now have direct access to African, young Africans who are also creating these movement styles and music styles. But there's so much more depth to it. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because, you know, first of all, that Afrobeat versus Afrobeats thing, it's like, you know what, couldn't they have been a little bit more, first of all, descriptive of what the music now is, because it's not Afrobeats. You know what I mean? It's, Mm -hmm. it's. Afro hip, right. Afro pop, you know, something like that, right? It's exactly. like, it's a different kind mm-hmm. of, you know, because the beat is like a roots thing, right? And it's, and it carries right. and sure. I mean, unfortunately, there, this is where that academic piece also comes in is like, there's so many people who are just not learned about Africans. And I think it's great. Like you said, it's right. great that, you know, finally there's more of an embrace of what's going on in Africa and the dances and everything. But this blanket Africa thing comes back to us because there, yep. there are the nuances. Like you said, the Congolese, the, you know, the, the Ghanaian, the South African, all of those things that yep. just kind of allow for an opportunity to understand so much more about the entire continent. Again, we're happy for the exactly. window. Very happy for the window. But we 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 definitely have there's there's work to be done, I'd say. So so yeah. Okay. So speaking of all of this movement and things like that, mm-hmm. I like to ask a question called why the where? How did okay. you come to be living and working and playing where you currently are? <laughs> so is this a story? I guess everything's a story. Yes. You know what? You know when those things when you like 
assume that you just land somewhere and then when somebody asks you, you're like, wait a minute, there's a story behind it. Exactly. The first time that I came to uh, FSU to Tallahassee was with Ronald K. Brown. Mm. I was He was teaching at the Regional Dance for the RDA, our Regional Dance Association. I hope I got mm-hmm. that right. Um, which is a lot of Midwestern dance companies that come uh, to one place. And most of these dancers are competitive dancers, ballet dancers. They come from studio work, but the institution is designed to give these uh, young, talented students an opportunity to be exposed to the global or New York artists. So for two years straight, Ron Brown was teaching them, Ronald K. Brown of the Dance Company Evidence, for those that don't know, a very, very revolutionary choreographer that was one of the first in the 80s to embrace the fusion between African-based movement and modern dance and found a way to really fuse in a beautiful way. He was one of my inspirations. And anyway, that's why he's on my resume. But uh, I came down with him, and we'll probably talk more about him later, but I came down here. To, to work with him as musical director of that program. So I would help the students who would choreograph every day and choose music. And I would also, because I'm a sound engineer, I would also be able to help them record and edit the music to make it fit the length of their pieces and all that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So that was my first time here. And I really liked it here. I mean, the institution is amazing. So, and the dance department is one of the biggest and best institution, uh, dance departments in the nation. Mm. There's a couple of people here, uh, including uh, Russell Sanders, who did has done an amazing amount of work. Uh, Jawale uh, Zolar is actually one of the main faculty here. She's the founder of Urban Bushwick. Mm. Um, okay. So there's been an amazing amount of work that's been done here on this campus towards developing dance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the building is huge, it has multiple studios, and I was you know, enamored by it. It also they also work with an organization called Manson. So they have a separate organization within the institution that brings artists from New York and from all over the world, from all over the country, to perform and and not only perform but work through their process. Mm-hmm. So that was the first time that I came down here, and I knew that there was something special here. The second time I actually got brought here by Mansi, which is you know, again, like I said, a separate organization, but it's also housed within the dance department here. And I came with my collaborator, Beatrice Capote, who's an Afro-Cuban dancer who works with Camille Brown and also has worked with uh, Alvin Ailey. She's been studying, she's yeah, danced with Alvin Ailey most of her life. And so we came here to kind of do a work in progress as she was going through self-discovery about her African, Afro-Cuban roots and was doing a piece about this revolutionary woman named Raita mm. uh, out of Cuba who had, was talking about the progression of Cuba and the life of Afro-Cuban women through the revolution and uh, through change of power, through the embargoes from the U.S. and all that type of stuff. Dealing with a gender bias, dealing with racism, dealing with patriarchy, all those things. And so she was creating a dance piece about that. And so I came in with her to compose the music for that piece. And then I told her, I was like, I, I, like, this, I like this place. I, I'm coming back. Even if I've got to do like, you know, I don't know, I've got to hang lights or something like that. I'm like, you know, I'll hang lights for the shows. And then during the day, I'll be in the studio working on stuff. So I was just like laughing, making jokes about it. But seriously, next thing you know, they had a position opening up where one of their faculty was leaving. Doug Coben was leaving. He had been here for 20 plus years and he's an amazing guy. I was leaving the institution, so they needed somebody to replace him. So during the interim, they were bringing four different people to audition and teach his classes for a year. And uh, I took advantage of it, came down here, and then I ended up getting the position. Wow. That's Florida. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of dope. <laughs> you manifested that for real, though. You're like... I know, I, I, it's weird. Like, I mean, you know those things where you... 
sometimes I want to act like I'm lucky or I want to do what everybody says. But nothing is really luck. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think luck is, I think everything is intention. You know? Yes. You know, it may not manifest exactly the way you envision it, but when you have an intention yes. to, to be yes. somewhere, it's going to yes. happen one yes. way or another. Yes. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there, yeah. I would say, yeah, there is luck in the sense of, mm-hmm. you know, just the the randomness of things happening. Cause I think that's where the luck kind of comes in a little bit more than the intention of it. So yeah, I would agree. It's like, yeah, you have the intention and I've just been feeling that so much more lately, actually, you know, maybe it's just the maturity of my own self, the evolution of my, right. my own, like whatever you want to call it. My guest in a recent episode, she was an astrologer. And so she was really making the point of like, all right, you can manifest anything that you desire. You just have to be intent on making that happen. And so, you know, I like to bring that. That's why, you know, manifesting a new world. Yes, we can all do that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so now you're in Florida. What? Okay, so you're in Tallahassee. Tell us a little bit more about the Tallahassee that you've come to. I've never been to that part of Florida. So for our, our global listeners, what Tell us more about that space. You've mentioned the campus. It's beautiful. Is most mm-hmm. of what you're doing right. now revolving around campus? What is the town like? How are you understanding Florida? Whoa. Okay. It's one of those things. You're kind of messing me up right now because we start classes tomorrow. Mm, okay. And so I'm zoned. I'm trying to zone out into the idea of like, what am I going to teach in my class? And what am I, you know, I'm trying to get very rudimentary and basic. I still need to finish all my paperwork. I need to start learning more about tenure because I'm, I'm, you know, part of a uh, tenure yes, track professor. Right. But what you're asking me is to survey the overall bigger picture, uh-huh. which I've been avoiding right now, but I'll, I'll get into it. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's your show. It's not, it's not my world. It's your show. <laughs> Tallahassee has an incredibly deep history. Mm-hmm. There is, and this is what I'm learning, right? You know, aside from the initial thing, which is really enjoying the campus, it is whenever you're in more rural America, there is institutions that create their own little world. And then there's the bigger world that, that, they're, that they're enveloped in. Couple different things. And I think I'll just state the facts and then leave it there. First of all, FSU was originally a women's college. And UF, University of Florida, was the major college for the state. And at some point, they realized that they needed, they wanted a local college that was a little bit, that more people could be a part of. I think it had to do with the GI Bill, if I'm not mistaken. It had to do with uh, World War II. Mm. They decided to integrate the FSU. So that's one aspect of what it is. I'll leave the audience to kind of make their own assessments of that reality. Mm -hmm. FSU was originally a women's college and then became a college that had men as well. There's tracks at the bottom of the hill. Across the tracks... Is FAMU, mm. which is uh, a predominantly black institution. And that's Florida A&M University um, for those who aren't familiar. Florida A&M University. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I don't want to mess up the acronym, but yeah, yeah, you get it. So you go down the hill, cross the tracks, mm-hmm. and then there's FAMU. I know about FAMU. In fact, a bunch of people from FAMU, when we went, we, me with Harambe and your mm-hmm. sister, went to uh, Black Dance, the Blacks and Dance uh, Conference back in 95, I think it was. We had actually bumped into a bunch of students that were at FAMU, that were from FAMU, and they had their own African Dance Department. I remember them sitting around rehearsing or practicing, and we ended up walking in and having a great conversation. Little did I know that literally three of them, I ended up 
no, not even three of them. I'd say like four or five of them I ended up interacting with over the last 20 mm. years. And one by one, they were like, oh, yeah, I was there. And I was like, no, you were, you were at the Blacks and Dance. Yeah, yeah, I was there. And then we ended up sharing stories, inclu- stories including Latoya Craig Davis, who teaches mm-hmm. here at the university. We sat down and found out that we were both there at that conference mm-hmm. 20 mm-hmm. years ago. 20, I'm lying. 25. 25. Girl. All right, so I'm not yet. <laughs> more than more than 25 years ago, actually. More than 25, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's one of the, I, I do know math. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, and then in addition to that, another uh, lady that I met oh, down there oh, by the name of Onye Ozuzu, who happened to be a friend who I ended up meeting in 2000 when I was here in Florida for another gig, was also there at that fam that FAMU meeting. Then she ended up. Uh, Letitia Williams was looking for somebody, so I recommend that she call my teacher because uh, the University of Colorado Boulder was asking, was looking for somebody to take over the uh, uh, professorship position that they just created for African dance. So Onye, I helped Onye get over there. She then went to Chicago University, but she's now dean at, I might be even wrong, I've got to do my research. She's now either the dean dean or president at, at, uh, at the University of Florida. So... Oh. Wow. Okay. So these, all these intersections are happening. Why I say all that stuff is I am definitely meant to be here, mm-hmm. but there is a huge divide that is a part of Tallahassee history. The African Amer- African American population here has been here for a long time and has dealt with a lot of different things, and some of those remnants still exist. FSU, Florida yeah. University, is a uh, a special island in the midst of all of that history in, in, in mm, culture. And it. so that's what I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, I think we may have to do mm-hmm. another interview in a year from now for me to really go into depth about it. Um, sure. But, but that's what I'm learning about. It's just amazing. The segregation is still a tinge of that. And I think a lot of what's happening now, mm. bringing people like me to this campus, is to start to create that open dialogue to try and undo some of those segregationist mentalities that were once a part of Tallahassee. Yeah, wow. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So that is, that is your Florida right now. So you're kind of an intersectional person in in that Mm -hmm. regard. And I want to get a sense of, you know, what you're hearing either there or here or Mm -hmm. in some other part of the world that you have found global speak that rings in your ears. So this is where I ask you to share a word or phrase or saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience and why or how you came to value this as global speak. So I know you haven't been there that long. So if you want to choose another of your localities, that's fine, but go okay. ahead. So yeah, phrase, 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 phrase. We belong everywhere. If I was to okay. make a phrase, do you want mm-hmm. a story to back up that phrase or just the phrase? Um, Give us some context. All right. <laughs> I was walking through a neighborhood that felt like it was very elite and I was afraid to be in that neighborhood just walking along because I like to walk mm. and you know different cities you don't necessarily belong in neighborhoods you got to be careful about where you walk mm-hmm. and I walked through there and then I saw a sign that made it clear that th- that it used to be a plantation um oh. that was now converted into a homing a, I mean a suburban area for homes and sure. so I'm saying to myself, do I really, should I really be walking through here? I don't want, you know, neighborhoods to feel skeptical about my presence. I wasn't sure about that. And let me yeah. be clear, people here have been very, very nice and very welcoming. But there's a small yeah. contingent of people that you know have those conservative beliefs. Yes. So you have to be cautious. Then as I'm yes. walking through there, feeling some kind of way, I bump on this one of these um, 
what is it? The, these the, the poem, the poems that have the writing, you know, some sort of writing or something that has to do with historical mm-hmm. context. And mm-hmm. on it, it said this area has been maintained as a tribute because it was originally the gravesite of the slaves that worked on this. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that's what lies like. I'm walking through a neighborhood that, I, that I'm scared to walk through, and yet African peoples have been here since the beginning of this city. Yeah. Contributed to it. Yeah. And so right. I have a right to walk through that neighborhood. Yeah. Wow, that's deep. And I, I, I guess it's in, in a lot of ways profound that they were thoughtful enough to recognize that this was a burial ground, you know? Absolutely. A lot of ways and shapes and forms, it's not. It's not. So, and, it's, and it's one of those things, like, it's such a complicated situation that we live in because you, you're basically mm-hmm. finding those allies, right? You know, mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I say that being respectful and thankful for allies at the same time, mm-hmm. knowing that, that that work is to benefit the society. I try to tell my students all the mm-hmm. time, it's like, I'm not, uh, I'm not asking you to be open-minded and, you know, to, because for my benefit, I'm going to figure out a way to survive. But in order mm-hmm. for you to, un- for we have to get rid of certain things in order for you to liberate yourself from the past and the history. And so all mm-hmm. of us have to be super open-minded to learn about other cultures, but not because to benefit the cultures that we're so-called saving. I, I don't want to get into the missionary, you know, conversation. Yes. But you're right. doing it for yourself to understand that if you respect people, you get the chance to be a part of their knowledge base and you get to share in their knowledge base. If you don't, mm-hmm. and I have to be careful about what I say because <laughs> this, this HP7, if you know about Florida, you know what's going on right now with CRT and, and what you can and cannot say. So Right, right, right. So again, the acronyms CRT is critical race theory. And HB7 is House Bill number seven. And so now is that, that is a local bill in Florida or is this yes. the not on the, yes. So this is a yes. local one where they are basically, yeah, all across, well, a lot of the South has mm-hmm. been very, very against mm-hmm. teaching true history. And so, so this is something that's on the ballot for this this fall, right? Is that they want to legislate the ways that slavery can be discussed Thank you. in the classroom? Yeah. So you know, I you know, I, I may be being just, I must be being a little cryptic just for, for fun. But since, yeah, I'm, I hear since you. I'm on campus, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to practice the ways in which I can get my point across without violating. Sure. You know. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. Exactly. There are. We love that you're tenure track and we want you to stay that way. So (laughs) (laughs) we will not allow you to say or do anything that would jeopardize that position. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Farai Malianga. Be sure to catch us next time when we talk more about Farai's current works, his mindset and how the artist became the academic. As always, you can catch us each and every Tuesday with new episodes at glocalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please like, share, subscribe, tell a friend. It helps people find good content. And until next time, bye for now.